They say Claude Dallas was the last of the mountain men, a modern-day cowboy and fur trapper just living life on his own terms, a throwback to the old breed, men like Jim Bridger and old Jed Smith, Kit Carson, the type who not only saddled their own horses, but, if need be, stomped their own snakes. Only thing was, the authorities just wouldn't let Dallas be. First, it was the FBI, then the Bureau of Land Management, and finally, a pair of game wardens out of Idaho. Dallas had sworn he'd never be taken in again, and sure enough, when the smoke cleared, both game wardens were dead on the ground. For over a year, Claude Dallas was the target of a nationwide manhunt, and when he was finally captured and sent to prison, he escaped, this time making it on the FBI's top 10 most wanted. And believe it or not, Claude Dallas is still alive. He's out there, somewhere. A man considered by many to be a hero. A walking, talking embodiment of the old motto, live free or die. But just how accurate are these sentiments? Is Claude Dallas truly a hero? A good man who refused to be victimized by an oppressive government? Or just a criminal turned cold-blooded killer? My name's Josh, and this is the Wild West Extravaganza. When Claude Dallas showed up at the Alvord Ranch, they weren't expecting much. Not only was the youngster still wet behind the ears, but he also had absolutely no experience punching cattle. Be that as it may, a spread like the Alvord was always looking for a few good hands. And besides, Claude's polite and soft-spoken manner made for a great first impression. Born in Virginia in March of 1950, Claude Lafayette Dallas Jr. cut his teeth in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula learning how to hunt and trap and pretty much soaking up any and all information he could find on the history of the Old West. Went to high school in Ohio, about an hour north of Columbus, and upon graduation in May of 1968, Claude bid his family goodbye and headed out on foot, just living out of his backpack and hoping to see the West that he had thus far only dreamt of, which is how he found his way to the Alfred Ranch in southeastern Oregon, there in the foothills of the Steens Mountains. Now, Dallas was quiet to a fault. Didn't speak much, but when he did, it was always with a yes sir, or no ma'am, and please and thank you. And when he gave his word, he kept it. There was just something about the young man that made folks want to adopt him. Didn't hurt matters none that he also turned out to be one hell of a hard worker, despite his youth and lack of experience. Claude's first day on the ranch, he was given a week's worth of labor, which he finished in less than half the time, after which he was teamed up with another young hand and sent out to repair fence. Although his partner quit after a few days, Dallas stuck with it. Hell, truth be told, he was in his element, working completely alone out of a remote line shack, busting ass from sunup till sundown, just as content as he could be. Likewise for the less glamorous chores, like digging a new outhouse. No matter what the job, Claude gave it his all and never complained. Wasn't long before the boss lady there at the ranch considered Dallas to be one of the hardest workers she had ever known which, I can assure you, is no small compliment on a working cattle ranch. Eventually, Dallas was allowed to ride and given a couple of gentle old nags until he got the hang of it. At first, the other buckaroos laughed at him and said Claude was just playing cowboy, but he never gave up. And in time, even the most seasoned of hands had to admit that if he was playing, he was playing damn hard. In no time flat, Claude was doing genuine cowboy work. Branding, roping, shoeing horses, castrating cattle, assisting in births, and all the other little everyday things that come with working on a ranch. And what's more, during time off, Dallas stayed out of trouble, unlike many of his co-workers. 
Although he would drink on occasion, it was never to excess. And besides, he was saving up money to buy himself a lever-action Winchester rifle. The perfect firearm for a cowboy, right? Especially one with a love of history and tradition. And make no mistake about it, despite his initial lack of experience and within a very short period of time, Claude Dallas turned out to be one hell of a cowboy. Nobody's perfect, though. And as Dallas grew more comfortable on the ranch, a few red flags began to surface. The first being his penchant for abusing livestock. Allegedly. I think now's a good time as any to point out that a lot of the information I leaned on for research comes from author Jack Olson and his book Give a Boy a Gun. Per Mr. Olson, Claude would routinely strike and or beat animals that tried his patience. Whether it be walloping a horse in the ribs or punching cattle square in the nose, Dallas wasn't shy about imposing his will if the livestock didn't move to his liking. Also, as it turns out, Claude's motivation in heading west might not have been as simple as a desire to become a cowboy. Remember, when Dallas left home in 1968, the war in Vietnam was reaching a fever pitch. In just that year alone, nearly 17,000 U.S. troops would be killed in action, well over twice as many in one year as would perish in total in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. And apparently, Claude Dallas didn't want nothing to do with it, even after Uncle Sam came calling in the form of a draft notice. Not passing any judgment here. Me personally, I've never served a day in uniform in my entire life. My father has, though. He was drafted, just like Claude. But unlike Claude, my dad would answer the call and soon find himself dodging bullets in South Vietnam. Matter of fact, by the time Dallas was getting hired on there at the Alvord Ranch, my dad was finishing up his tour and getting ready to head back to the States. I wouldn't be born for quite some time, but from what I'm told, my dad didn't talk about it. Like at all. Story goes that after he was discharged, he took all of his gear, his uniform, whatever they sent home with him, and put it in a pile and set it on fire. It wouldn't be for years later until I came around being nosy and asking questions that I shouldn't have been asking that he finally started opening up. Turns out my dad didn't have a good time of it over there in Vietnam, to say the least. A lot of young men did not have a good time of it over there in Vietnam. And those are the lucky ones who came back whole, at least physically. So if Dallas didn't want to go to Vietnam, especially in 1968, I honestly can't say as I blame him. My empathy aside, however, this choice would brand Claude as a fugitive. After all, dodging the draft was considered, in those days at least, to be a pretty serious crime. If caught, there was a good chance Dallas would end up behind bars, and he knew it. Feared if he stayed too long in one place, it was only a matter of time before the authorities caught up to him. As such, after about a year or so at the Alvord Ranch, he confided in his boss and explained the situation. Said maybe it would be best if he moseyed on down the trail. Now, I'm not entirely sure what Claude got up to directly after leaving the Alvord, but from what I can tell, it looks like he headed into the backcountry via horseback, and took to somewhat living off the land. And if that's the case, he didn't do too bad. When the young fugitive reappeared at the ranch about a month later looking to borrow some salt, his clothes were a bit worn, but other than that, he was in pretty good shape. Once Dallas secured some fresh supplies, he lit out again, once more on horseback, believe it or not, just working odd jobs here and there and drifting down to Nevada, where he continued to impress his employers. At one ranch where Dallas worked for just three weeks, the owner grew to trust him so much that when he and his family went on a trip, they didn't think twice about leaving Dallas in care of their house. That was just the kind of guy he was. Especially when he was younger, everybody that Dallas ran into liked and trusted this guy. Okay, I cannot stress that enough. 
By all appearances, he was just a very hard-working, extremely trustworthy young man. Finally, in the fall of 1970, Claude settled in at the Quarter Circle A in northern Nevada. And by the way, let me just go ahead and save you an email real quick. <laughs> I know I am not pronouncing Nevada correctly. Nevada, Nevada. I don't even know how you say it. Something about Nevada and Oregon, two states that we will be mentioning a lot here in this story on Claude Dallas, and I cannot pronounce either one of them correctly. I also can't say Washington without throwing an R in there, okay? So yes, I am aware. I'm not technically saying Nevada or Oregon the way they're supposed to be said, but hey, we can't all be perfect, right? Daddy's trying. All right, so like I said, fall of 1970, and Claude settled in on the Quarter Circle A Ranch in northern Nevada. Per usual, his work manners and work ethic were second to none, and Dallas more than held his own when it came to roping and branding. Just like at the Alvord Ranch, Claude rarely spoke and continued to be a bit of a loner. Nevertheless, he would endear himself to his fellow cowboys. One hand would later recall, quote, When you meet him, you want to do something for him. But underneath, I'm not really sure one of us really knows him. End quote. Unfortunately, Dallas was still prone to being a little too heavy-handed when it came to the animals. Once again, per author Jack Olson. On at least one occasion, Dallas struck a horse with a shoe and hammer, and on another, he began clubbing a fallen cow with a two-by-four so hard that his fellow cowboys had to intervene. Even dogs weren't safe around Claude. If they got in his way, he didn't think nothing about giving him a swift kick to the face. Hell, he once even knocked a Labrador retriever slap out. And that's a hard one for me to wrap my head around. A pit bull? Okay, maybe. A Rottweiler? All right. I mean, they are known for being aggressive. Maybe the dog came at Dallas the wrong way. But a Lab? Those are about the best damn dogs you could ever hope to encounter. I've never heard of anyone being attacked by a Lab. For whatever reason, though, Claude just had a very short fuse when it came to animals. Allegedly. And if the stories are true, Dallas also didn't pay much heed to the fish and game laws. Apparently to Dallas, bag limits and hunting seasons were mere suggestions. And when he wasn't working there on the ranch, he mostly filled his time by illegally procuring venison, an action that didn't sit too well with his fellow ranch hands. According to one of the other cowboys, quote, he sees nothing wrong with shooting any animal anytime. He'll drag in a young deer or antelope and leave it at the chuck wagon. Well, we have all the prime beef we want, and the wild meat just goes to waste. It puts the rest of us on the spot. Government men and game wardens are always dropping into camp, end quote. When asked why he was poaching so much, Dallas would claim that that's the way he did it as a kid in Michigan and that the game laws did not apply to subsistence hunters like himself. Now, I did make a half-assed attempt at finding out the last time subsistence hunting was allowed in Nevada. I was not successful, but I'm pretty sure by 1970 it was a no-go. Also, as we just heard from Claude's buddy there at the ranch, they had all the fresh meat they wanted on the hoof, and a good portion of that wild game was just going to rot. By absolutely no definition, was Claude Dallas a subsistence hunter? Allegedly. <laughs> I keep tossing in the word allegedly here for a few reasons, uh, not the least of which is the fact that Claude was never arrested for poaching during his stint at the Quarter Circle A, at least not that I'm aware of. As previously stated, a great deal of this information is coming from Jack Olson in his book, Give a Boy a Gun. Mr. Olson, sadly, is no longer with us, so I was unable to contact him. But that said, just from what I've been able to ascertain, the man was pretty thorough when it came to his sources. In addition to being an author, Olson was an award-winning journalist as well as the editor-in-chief of the Chicago Sun's Times. 
Also, Olson held senior positions at both Time Magazine and Sports Illustrated. And his studies on crime, at one point, were considered required reading in university criminology courses. So we're not just talking about some hack writer here, okay? Jack Olson was a very serious journalist with credentials a mile long. He was the real deal. Still, though, guess what? I wasn't there. I'm simply describing events as reported by Jack Olson, and not as I, Josh, saw them with my own two eyes. Hence the somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but weirdly at the same time very authentic, repetition of the word allegedly. Now these actions, the poaching and disregard for game laws and whatnot, if true, these do appear to have only increased as time went on, as did Claude's disdain for law enforcement in general. Interestingly enough, aside from making them a little uncomfortable at times, Dallas never seemed to have any problems with his fellow ranch hands. Matter of fact, and we'll discuss this more later, but I was unable to find a single instance where Dallas got into a physical altercation, i.e. a fistfight, with anyone. And I don't know about you, but I'm willing to bet that good old-fashioned bar brawls were a pretty common occurrence among Claude's peers, especially when they were hanging out in nearby Winnemucca. That's where all his cowboy buddies would go to partake in pleasures of the flesh. Dallas would join them at times, but he did continue to keep his drinking to a minimum and was never known to frequent whores. Claude, as one ranch hand put it, quote, seldom goes on a real toot, end quote. Gotta love that, toot. When's the last time you went on a toot, huh? I myself have not been on a toot in quite some time. But good for Dallas, though, right? Certainly can't blame a man for sticking to the straight and narrow. And to be honest, despite having his fair share of admirers, Dallas never really was known as a ladies' man. Hell, to hear the other cowboys tell it, when they got to talking dirty in the bunkhouse about women, Claude would turn beet red. Remember, Dallas was a bit of a loner, quiet-natured, and not prone to such loose talk. Except when it came to guns. While Dallas may have shied away from females, he most definitely had a lifelong love affair with firearms. Any mention of guns would perk Claude right up, and if you weren't careful, he'd talk your damn ears off. Not only did he have a small yet growing collection of firearms, but he also reloaded his own ammo, as many gun enthusiasts tend to do. Dallas also had an obsession with Western culture and the Old West in general. He devoured novels by Western authors like Louis L'Amour and Zane Grey, and even got really into old cowboy artwork, believe it or not. On one of his rare breaks from working on the ranch, Dallas made a trip all the way up to Montana just to visit the Charles M. Russell Museum. If you're not familiar, Mr. Russell was an iconic artist of the American Old West. And while you might not know his name, I can all but guarantee you've seen some of his paintings. No word on whether or not Claude listened to podcasts about the Old West, though. Ha <laughs> ha. I'm kidding, obviously, as podcasts did not exist in the 1970s. But hey, they do now. And like I said earlier, Claude Dallas is still alive. Who knows? Maybe he's got access to the internet, wherever he is. Maybe he's listening right now. In addition to being fascinated with old-timey cowboys, Claude even took to dressing like him. How Dallas looked apart so much that when a photographer snapped a picture of him in all of his authentic buckaroo finery, ended up in a National Geographic article on American cowboys. Gotta admit, that's pretty cool. At least it would have been if Claude wasn't wanted by the law. I'm no lawyer, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that if you've got an outstanding warrant for your arrest, if the federal authorities are looking for you, it might not be a good idea to have your face and location put on blast like that. 
especially in a magazine as widely distributed as the National Geographic once was. Sure enough, the FBI hadn't forgotten about Dallas dodging the draft. And I guess they had them a subscription to Nat Geo because it wasn't long after that article was published that the feds came to pay a visit. Found Dallas in the bunkhouse, alone, and arrested him without incident, much to his embarrassment. Claude was booked into the Lander County Jail and then flown all the way back to Ohio to stand trial. Now, I did look into this a bit, and there was indeed a lot of draft dodging going on in the late 60s and early 70s. That said, out of over half a million young men classified as draft dodgers, less than half of them were ever formally accused of draft violations. And of those, only 8,770 were convicted, with just a little over 3,000 doing time in jail. Not Claude Dallas, though. It wasn't long at all before he was back at the ranch, claiming that the case was dropped due to improper procedures on the part of the draft board. I guess the government couldn't prove conclusively that Dallas had received that draft notice before setting out for Oregon, which we obviously now know, by his own admission, he did. They just couldn't prove it, so he got off. When prodded by his fellow ranch hands as to why he didn't want to go to Vietnam, Dallas stated that he wasn't afraid to fight for his country if they asked him nicely, but that nobody was just going to start ordering him around. And there's that first peek at Claude's rebellious side. This is going to be a big theme throughout this entire story. Boy, howdy is it. Claude Dallas just did not like being told what to do, especially by those in authority. He was also pretty angry at having been arrested without putting up a fight told his buddies that if those agents had to snuck up on him like they did, he'd have never been taken so easily. What's more, according to Claude, the FBI mistreated him while in custody. One agent in particular even ominously threatened to, quote, get him eventually, even if it was for something as small as tax evasion. This, too, will become a pattern as Dallas, on several more occasions, will claim to be threatened or provoked by members of law enforcement. Now that aside, I do find it interesting that Claude doesn't exactly fit the profile of your average draft dodger. At least not the way we think about him nowadays, right? You know, it wasn't like he was hanging out at Hyatt Ashbury, smoking dope and hopping up and down in beads and sandals. And he wasn't some rich college kid. By any other metric, Dallas was a red-blooded, flag-waving American. Grew up hunting and trapping, and then, while he's still a teenager, he set out on his own and became a for-real, by-God working cowboy. And these rural areas where Claude was living, southeast Oregon and northern Nevada, they're about as patriotic as you can get. Then again, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here when I say that some folks, much like Claude Dallas, and particularly in portions of Nevada and Oregon, and even Idaho, do have a very strong distrust of the federal government. We'll talk more about that later, but when Dallas was still in Ohio, his old boss at the Alvord Ranch loaned him $900 for legal fees. And true to his word, Claude soon showed up there in Oregon to pay off his debt in the form of labor. Arrived in April of 1974, working just as hard as ever. Things were somewhat different, though. While he was still a polite, soft-spoken young man, Dallas did seem a little more downcast than he had just a few years prior. Also, by this point, his fascination with firearms had become a full-blown obsession. Gun magazines replaced Western novels, and rather than admire the paintings of Charles Russell, Dallas instead studied military and police tactics. And he practiced with his guns constantly, particularly his quick draw. Hell, Claude even slept with a damn gun. And whereas his anger was once reserved just for animals, he did seem to grow more aggressive toward his fellow man. 
When anglers began cutting through Alvord land in order to reach prime fishing spots, Claude, unprompted, would put spikes in the road to flatten their tires. At least one ranch employee noticed the change in Dallas and worried that if he and those fishermen ever came face-to-face in person, somebody might get seriously hurt. Luckily, that never happened, and once the summer's work was done and the debt repaid, Claude returned to Nevada where, believe it or not, he called it quits on the cowboy life. I guess Dallas enjoyed doing things the old way. Remember, he was all about that old traditional lifestyle. And by the mid-1970s, more and more ranchers were embracing modern-day technology and making traditional hands like himself somewhat obsolete. And then there was also the Bureau of Land Management coming in and trying to tell ranchers what they could and couldn't do. At least that's how Dallas saw it. Now, the Bureau of Land Management, also known as the BLM for short, is the government agency responsible for administrating and overseeing federal lands. And in Nevada, damn near the entire state falls under the BLM. I'm not sure of the exact percentage, but I believe it's something like 80% of the state that's federally owned, or roughly 48 million acres. Now, this is considered public land, our land. You can camp there, fish, go hunting, and just enjoy all that the great outdoors has to offer. Ranchers also use the BLM to run their livestock. In just the state of Nevada alone, there are hundreds of permits and leases each year allowing cow and sheep outfits to graze their animals on BLM land. But since it's public land, not actually owned by the ranchers, there are regulations administered by the BLM. They do charge a fee for graving livestock, there are rules and restrictions, and I guess to a guy like Claude Dallas, that equates to just a whole hell of a lot of overreaching bureaucratic bullshit. And he certainly wasn't alone in these sentiments. A lot of people currently have similar concerns in those same areas, as was evidenced by the Bundy standoff just a mere decade ago. So as it were, instead of punching cattle, both literally and figuratively, Dallas took to working odd jobs driving trucks, welding, mechanic work, stuff like that. He also began hanging out in the tiny community of Paradise Hill, about 20 or so miles north of Winnemucca. And describing Paradise Hill as a community may be stretching it just a bit. To be honest, I'm not even sure if anyone actually lives there nowadays, and the only business I'm aware of is a truck stop. Things were different back in the 70s, though, mostly thanks to a drinking establishment known as The Bar. That's it, the bar. That's what it was called. It's there where Dallas began hanging out quite a bit, and in time, he even became good friends with the bar's owner, George Nielsen. And trust me when I say that George was about as different from Claude Dallas as another human being could possibly get. Where Claude was polite, reserved, and not given to drink, George was loud, obnoxious, always holding court at the bar on a variety of topics, quick with the dirty jokes, constantly bragging about his sex life, and never without a drink in his hand. Hell, George Nielsen's ability to hold his liquor was legendary. More than a few poor cowpokes tried to outdrink the barkeep, and by the time they were blacking out, George was just getting warmed up. He was also damn near three times the age of Claude Dallas. Be that as it may, despite the generational gap and the clear personality differences, The two not only became fast friends, but in time, George became almost a surrogate father to Dallas and considered the young drifter as his own son. And this close relationship was almost exclusively due to their shared hatred of the federal government, along with a mutual obsession with firearms. Much like Dallas, Nielsen was always packing, even when doling out shots of whiskey. Kept a pistol in his back pocket and another within arm's reach behind the bar at all times. 
As for Claude, he had also taken to carrying two pistols. A 357 that mostly stays strapped to his hip and a backup gun concealed elsewhere on his person. And when he wasn't working or unwinding at the bar, he was still constantly practicing both marksmanship and speed. When asked why he was so passionate about firearms, Dallas would claim that he just wanted to be prepared for the future. That and that he also just really loved guns. And hey, fair enough. I mean, we've all got our hobbies, right? But at least one Paradise Hill local claimed that the reason Dallas always went armed was so that nobody would whoop his ass. And that may hold a little water, as supposedly, on the one and only occasion when Dallas was challenged to a bar fight, rather than use his fist, he went for a pistol. Guess his opponent wasn't interested in taking things to that level, and the argument was over. So definitely not a pugilist, Claude Dallas, but he certainly wasn't afraid to escalate matters. In that regard, he does sort of remind me of a few other figures we've discussed here on the Wild West Extravaganza. Men who, for the most part, seem to be itching for a fight. That said, I think it's only fair to point out that during this period, Claude Dallas did still maintain one hell of a good reputation. He was known for being a hard worker, exceptionally honest, trustworthy, and the type of guy who, when he goes through a gate, he closes it behind him. High praise indeed. Now, as far as Claude's romantic prospects there in Paradise Hill, there was an older married lady who Dallas may have had a bit of a dalliance with, and there was a waitress there at the bar who he took fishing on a couple of occasions. Because let's face it, nothing says seduction like a stocked reservoir in Humboldt County. Still, though, I don't think anyone was under the impression that wedding bells were anywhere in Claude's foreseeable future. According to one Paradise Hill local, quote, Claude treats them like queens. I don't believe he takes any of them to bed, but if he does, he calls them ma'am, end quote. And I got to imagine that the pickings were pretty slim there in Paradise Hill. And who knows, maybe Claude just had high standards. But so far as I can tell, and as far as everyone else who was close to him was concerned, Dallas just did not really have any interest in dating or even women in general. Which is fine, but you got to admit, to a casual observer, when you add it all together, you know, the lack of relationships with the opposite sex, a borderline unhealthy obsession with guns, government paranoia, and rumors of animal cruelty, well, it really does start to give off some real incel vibes. For what it's worth, though, I don't necessarily think that's the case. By the way, if you're not familiar, incel is a relatively new term that stands for involuntarily celibate often used to describe men who, for lack of a better phrase, can't get laid and thus take their sexual frustrations out on society. But here's the thing. Claude Dallas was not a bad-looking guy, by any standard. No homo. During his time frequenting the bar, Dallas would have been in his mid to late 20s. Dude was about 170 pounds, 5 foot 10 inches tall, and in great physical shape, just from constantly busting his ass at various jobs and hiking all over the damn wilderness. Plus, he had that whole shy, mysterious thing going on. That married lady I mentioned earlier, she was the one who came calling on Dallas, not the other way around. And as you'll soon hear, there are plenty of other ladies in other locales who found the bashful buckaroo quite alluring. I'm just not sure he ever shared their interest. Whether or not Claude was celibate, I don't know. But I'm positive his sex life, or lack thereof, was entirely of his own choice. Or hell, I don't know. Maybe Claude just didn't kiss and tell. That's always a possibility. Either way you want to cut it, there was nothing in this man's life that ever indicated any particular fondness for female companionship. This, of course, was in stark contrast to George Nielsen, 
who liked to brag that he got more pussy than any man in the state of Nevada. Now, in addition to running the bar there in Paradise Hill, George also operated a little trailer park out back, where, in time, Dallas would move in, at which point he could be found on most any given night at the saloon, nursing a beer or maybe even a Pepsi, but rarely socializing. Just like back in his cowboy days, Claude continued to keep to himself. If you started up a conversation and he didn't feel like talking, he would just get up and walk away. Unless, of course, you brought up guns or government overreach, in which case Claude was more than willing to share his opinions. And oftentimes, these opinions were peppered with a few threats. Matter of fact, Dallas was heard more than once, stating that he wasn't afraid to resort to violence if anybody in power ever attempted to infringe upon his rights. And more often than not, George Nielsen would toss in his two cents as well. Described as an instigator, George was known to get folks all kinds of riled up, to quote-unquote stir the shit, only to then slide himself right out of whatever trouble he may have caused and then just watch from the sidelines. And when it came to Claude's growing hatred of the federal government, George Nielsen never wasted an opportunity to throw fuel on the fire. And just like Dallas, George openly and repeatedly threatened deadly force if his rights were trampled upon. Now, as time went on, these two ended up going into business together. Not content with just working those odd jobs, Dallas also started running trap lines, just like he did when he was a kid back in Michigan, and trading his pelts, along with a little venison, to George Nielsen, who in turn would sell it out of his bar to truckers and tourists and whoever. Believe it or not, back in the 1970s, there was actually pretty good money to be made in trapping fur. Demand was at an all-time high, as were prices, and more than a few young men paid their way through college just by setting traps in their spare time. As for Dallas, he went all in, running trap lines from northern Nevada all the way to southeastern Oregon and even up into Idaho, almost exclusively on public land, which, by the way, is 100% legal. Initially, Claude enjoyed a good reputation among other trappers. He didn't mess with anybody else's equipment or animals and was said to have kept a friendly, welcoming camp. His methods, however, well, let's just say they weren't exactly in line with Nevada fishing game. They might not have been the best technique-wise, either. Not only was Dallas illegally baiting his traps and just flat-out refusing to use spacers, thus needlessly harming animals that he may not have even been after, but he also wasn't all that concerned with legal limits or trapping seasons. And to make matters worse, for some damn reason, Claude even, allegedly, took to killing wild mustangs, both as food for himself and as bait. Story goes that Dallas would live off damn near nothing but horse flesh for months at a time, raving about the culinary delights. As you can imagine, it didn't take long for the game wardens to catch wind, and you better believe they came investigating. In the spring of 1976, Nevada Fish and Game agent Del Elliott found a set of Claude's illegally baited traps and confiscated them. He also confronted Dallas about killing those Mustangs, an accusation which Claude thoroughly denied. In the end, Dallas was cited and had to pay a fine to get his traps back. And trust me when I say he was not a happy camper. Said the only reason he was allowed to be cited was due to being on someone else's property at the time and not wanting to cause trouble for the landowner. According to Claude, had he been on public land, as he usually was, or anywhere else for that matter, he would have simply shot Elliot dead. Said the same thing about another couple of game wardens who visited his camp one day, telling friends that had they stumbled upon his stash of illegal mountain lion pelts, he would have gunned them both down. 
Yet another warden showed up at Claude's camp one day when he wasn't around and left a card with a note scribbled on it, reading something to the effect of, I'll be seeing you, which the increasingly touchy Dallas interpreted as a threat. Now, despite all this heat, Dallas just kept right on a poaching. So much, in fact, that anonymous calls began flooding in from concerned trappers and citizens alike, claiming that Dallas was killing everything from trophy rams to kit foxes, even mountain lions. A lot of mountain lions. There's even one story of him killing some mountain lion cubs, allegedly. In December of 1978, Claude was once again caught red-handed when game wardens found his jeep parked in the Bloody Runs, a rugged and hilariously named area just to the west of Paradise Hill. The conservation officers confiscated several illegal traps, and when Dallas failed to reemerge from the wilderness, they also took the guns that he had left behind in the Jeep, a 357 revolver along with the rifle. Now, Claude knew they were there. Hell, he was likely watching from the tree line the entire time. But rather than engaging in gunplay like he'd been bragging about doing, he simply ran several miles to a friend's house. Then, about three or four days later, he showed up at the sheriff's office looking to get his guns back. Gene Weller of the Nevada Fish and Game did promptly return the firearms, but he also attempted to reason with Claude, told him that he could do just as well trapping legally, that he didn't have to be out there breaking the law. Furthermore, Mr. Weller offered to help Dallas out, maybe coach him up on some new tricks or techniques that the young trapper may not have been aware of. When it was all said and done, the two came to a compromise. Dallas said that if he had any bad traps set in the bloody runs, if being the operative word, Give him a week, and he'll clean him up, and there won't be no more trouble. Okay, cool. Weller agreed, and like I said, he gave Claude his guns back. In parting, Dallas told the warden that he'd be welcome in his camp anytime, on the condition that he leave his badge outside. In the weeks that followed, the two would meet on several more occasions, and according to Weller, Dallas was always polite, even bordering on friendly. Behind the game warden's back, however, it was a completely different story. Just like before, Dallas was bragging to his buddies in Paradise Hill about how he would never allow himself to be caught again, and implying that he'd use any means necessary to stop such an intrusion. Also, oddly enough, Dallas began waxing poetic about life on the run, saying that he thought he would enjoy being a wanted man and boasting about how good he'd be at it. Said he'd just fight his way from one weapons cache to another, taking out anyone and everyone who came looking for him. He also played out this fantasy in the form of an invading army, a la Red Dawn, or sometimes just wishing there weren't any law or taxes whatsoever. Sort of like a societal collapse scenario. And these weren't just idle fantasies. Supposedly, Claude was physically preparing for such an event and constantly trying to toughen himself up, even to the point of choosing to sleep on the hard floor of his trailer rather than a nice soft bed. Not a super healthy frame of mind to find yourself in. But then again, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't, on occasion, have similar fantasies, especially when I was younger. I don't know about you, but I've definitely played out various scenarios in my head. Everything from World War III to a new civil war, financial collapse, EMP strikes, you name it. This is partly a guy thing, I think. You know, we've all watched the post-apocalyptic movies or read the books and placed ourselves in the story, usually as the hero and we imagine how we'd act or what we'd do. And to a lesser degree, I also think it's just a fun exercise in staying prepared, right? While I don't think we'll be invaded by zombie bikers or Chinese paratroopers anytime soon, you never know when there's going to be an extended power outage or a hurricane or something along those lines. 
Prepare for the worst and hope for the best, right? Never hurts to have some extra ammo or food or a contingency plan. Those are good things, I think. But if you're genuinely fantasizing about total societal collapse because you hate paying taxes or just because you want to shoot a bunch of deer out of season, or if you become obsessed with planning out ambush locations on the off chance that you're wanted by law enforcement, well, at that point, I think it might be time to seek a little help. And in the case of Claude Dallas, people did begin noticing this change. While he still kept a so-called friendly camp when he was out in the woods, not everyone felt comfortable around the man. A fellow trapper paid him a visit one day and left shortly thereafter, claiming that he got spooked by the way Dallas was talking and constantly fondling his pistol. Sort of like he was just itching to use it. Be that as it may, to many of the locals around Paradise Hill, especially the patrons of the bar, Claude Dallas was quickly becoming a local legend. Their very own real-life modern-day mountain man. A reputation Claude further solidified in the summer of 1979, when he took a break from trapping to join friends floating the Yukon River. Okay, great. This is just what a guy like Dallas needs. A little time off, just relaxing with friends, and having some nice, healthy, legal fun. Maybe even get a blowjob while he's at it. Only problem is, Dallas used this as an opportunity to commit several unnecessary felonies. As his buddies were passing through customs like normal human beings, an armed to the teeth Dallas was in the nearby forest, stealthily making his way across the Canadian border like Rambo. And after rejoining his pals on the other side, Claude wasted no time in locating and illegally shooting a doll sheep. His friends joked that Dallas was well on his way to making a Grand Slam. Now, I've never hunted sheep, but it's my understanding that a Grand Slam, in this context, is when you harvest all four wild species of sheep in North America. Desert bighorn, Rocky Mountain bighorn, stone sheep, and doll sheep, if I'm not mistaken. This can be extremely difficult, and not just due to the rough terrain and varying locations. Just getting a permit to hunt some of these animals is a feat unto itself. And some people spend their entire life playing the tag lottery system. Those who finally obtain a permit then need to be able to afford a guide or just hope that they get lucky. For many hunters, this is literally the pinnacle of their lives, a crowning achievement. For someone like Claude, though, who didn't really give a shit about the law or conservation, and who didn't feel like he should have to wait around for pesky permits or tags, it was quite a bit easier. His only worry, after all, was just not getting caught by the game wardens or whatever they call Game Wardens up in Canada. Game Wardens A, I think. Once back in Nevada, Dallas resumed poaching, allegedly, operating on the border of Idaho as his legend continued to blossom. Hell, tourists would even line up at the bar in Paradise Hill just to get their photos taken with Claude, the famous Nevada trapper just living off the land like Jeremiah Johnson. Or at least that's how they saw him. At the same time, Claude's dislike for his fellow man was growing at a rapid pace especially those whom he judged weak. Called them lepies, a ranching term often used for abandoned or orphaned calves that run around bawling for their mamas. Now before we go any further, I do want to address this commonly held belief that Claude Dallas was a modern-day mountain man just minding his own business and living off the land. In my opinion, this was and is a big reason why so many people look up to the guy. And shit, man, I get it. I mean, what's not to admire about somebody trekking off into the wilderness and just living life on their own terms? As long as they're not hurting anybody, what's the problem, right? Well, first, let's just establish that Claude wasn't exactly out there living like Grizzly Adams, okay? 
He still had that trailer in Paradise Hill, he had modern conveniences, and he certainly wasn't just living off the meat that he harvested. Nor did he have a need to live off of what he was killing. I think that's an important distinction. At no point while researching Claude Dallas did I find any instance where he was forced to poach game in order to survive. Also, while many contend that Dallas was the best trapper that Nevada had ever seen and that he could outthink a bobcat and regularly delivered more hides to market than anyone else, turns out that might not be true. Stories of Claude's poor technique abound, and at least one veteran trapper who knew him personally stated that while Dallas had the makings of a good trapper, he was not bringing in near as many furs as some claim. To make matters worse, by around 1980, Claude began destroying the traps of his so-called competitors. Even though he was operating on public land, I guess Dallas felt like all the animals there belonged to him. And as I hinted at earlier, he had even taken to killing mountain lion cubs. All of this inevitably just led to even more anonymous complaints to Nevada Fish and Game. Finally, Dallas decided that he'd make a change of venue and maybe even have himself a grand adventure in the process decided to winter in a desolate region of the Owyhee Desert in southwestern Idaho, a place called Bull Basin, just a few miles north of the Nevada border, an area described by Dallas as one of the most remote locations in all of the United States. Which got me to thinking, how does one go about determining the most remote or isolated region in the country? Enter in Ray and Rebecca Means. The couple, both of them conservation biologists, set out a few years ago to locate the most remote areas in all 50 states. And their criteria was pretty straightforward. It's whatever place is furthest from a road. Any road. Even those that are unpaved and private. Also, the area in question can't be under some giant lake or anything like that. It has to be on land. By this metric, the means found that the most isolated or remote location in the lower 48 was located in Wyoming's Yellowstone National Park, 21.7 miles from a road. Took the happy couple a few days to hike in, and to their surprise, they found a cabin less than a mile away. Now there is another theory, one that I first heard about on the Meat Eater podcast, that argues that the country's most remote place is wherever happens to be the furthest from a McDonald's. In 2009, a statistician by the name of Stephen Von Worley, how's that for a name, created a heat map showing the location of every single McDonald's in the continental U.S. It's like those maps that you'll see in zombie movies, you know, where they show the outbreak spreading with red dots, but instead of the dots representing the walking dead, they're marking the location of Big Macs. Sure enough, there are some pretty big dark spots in the western U.S., especially in Nevada and southern Idaho, signifying a dearth of Mickey D's. Matter of fact, when the map was updated in 2015, the most remote location, a.k.a. the McFarthest, was deemed to be about halfway between Las Vegas and Reno, or over 120 miles from the nearest McDonald's. Now that's as the crow flies, not driving distance. I'm not sure how it was in 1980, but this area where Claude was planning on spending the winter, currently, according to Google Maps and my very own rough estimate, is about 75 miles, as the crow flies, from the nearest quarter pounder with cheese. It might not be the most isolated place in the United States, but it's pretty damn remote. Even nowadays, for Paradise Hill, it's about a five-hour drive just to get there. And I've seen photos of the road going in, and it does seem pretty dang rough. Now, speaking of Google Maps, if you go and you type in Bull Basin, Idaho, it'll show a location about 40 or so miles north of Nevada. This was not Claude's Bull Basin. While I don't have the exact coordinates, 
The place where Dallas was headed was in the extreme southwest portion of Idaho, just a couple of miles north of the border, on the Little Owyhee River, very close to a place called Coyote Hole and due south of the 45 Ranch. Once again, on Google Maps, if you search for Bull Camp as opposed to Bull Basin, you'll find the area that I'm talking about. Now, contrary to popular belief, when Dallas finally made the move out to his winter camp, he did not do so as a lone mountain man, riding out into the great unknown on his trusty steed and leading a pack mule. While it is true that Claude had a mule, two of them actually, they were hauled in via trailer, as were quite a few supplies. Matter of fact, it took seven men, a pickup truck, a Chevy Suburban, and a damn school bus to transport all of Claude's equipment. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, okay? But it does somewhat alter the narrative of Dallas being 100% self-sufficient and living off the land like a damn Jim Bridger. Once they arrived at Bull Basin, these buddies, most of whom Claude knew from the bar at Paradise Hill, helped him to carry supplies down to the camp, including a tent and a propane heater. And they made plans for a series of resupply visits as the winter progressed. Finally, they departed and left Dallas all on his lonesome to trap to his little heart's content. Now, this was BLM land, publicly owned, but it was also leased to an old boy named Don Carlin. As the owner of the aforementioned 45 Ranch, Carlin had a permit to run his cows in the area, and as it turns out, the very basin where Dallas set up camp was also where Don and his son Eddie would herd the cattle to for protection when the weather turned nasty. It weren't but a few weeks until the Carlins discovered Claude's camp, and they immediately pegged him as a trapper. That's another thing. The Carlins also ran trap lines there in the basin, as did other trappers. So even with bull camp being as remote as it was, you still have people coming in and harvesting fur, and the Carlins, of course, looking after their cattle. Now let me just pause real quick and discuss the legalities of the situation up till this point. Those of you with more knowledge of BLM land, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm pretty sure Claude Dallas was perfectly within his rights to set up camp where he did. As far as I know, there were no rules stating that he couldn't do so just because the Carlins happened to also use the land for their cows. If anything, this was more of an etiquette issue. You know, the 45 Ranch was clearly marked on maps, even in those days, and Dallas had to know that they were nearby. I find it hard to believe that he didn't see evidence of cattle being grazed there. Hell, there were even gates. I don't know, man. I kind of feel like if it was me, I'd be nervous camping there without reaching out to the Carlins and at least introducing myself. You know, make sure nobody gets their feelings hurt. But as far as the law goes, I do think Dallas was in the clear, at least momentarily. Nowadays, most, if not all, public land here in the United States has a 14-day rule. You can stay put in one camping location for up to two weeks. After that, you got to break camp and move at least 25 miles down the trail. And this does make sense. You know, it prevents people from just creating permanent homes on public land, first of all. And it also gives other people the opportunity to enjoy prime campsites. But was this the case in 1980? I don't know. I wasn't even born yet. I tried looking up when that rule first went into place, and I was unsuccessful. If you happen to know, please shoot me an email at josh at wildwestextra.com. Either way, the main problem with Claude there in Bull Basin was just him doing the same shit that he always did, trapping out of season and killing well over his legal limit when it came to wild game. At least that's according to Eddie Carlin of the 45 Ranch, who paid Dallas a visit on New Year's Eve 1980. Per Eddie, when he rode into camp, there were a couple of deer hanging up and the head of a third nearby. 
a perplexing sight considering the abundance of game in the area. He also noticed at least two illegal bobcat hides draped over a bush. Dallas soon emerged, and once Eddie got a good look up close, he suddenly realized that the two had met a couple years prior in a cow camp further to the west. And even back then, Carlin got the impression that Claude had what he described as a itchy trigger finger. Later, after comparing notes, Eddie would learn that his father, Don, had also previously met Dallas. Same location, over in Star Valley, trapping out of season. According to Don, Claude told him, quote, I don't think it's anybody's business in the world where or when I trap, end quote. Now, the meeting between Eddie and Dallas there in Bull Basin was cordial enough, but still a mite tense. Just between me and you, I think Eddie went in there fully intending to tell this unwanted guest to pack up and get it the hell gone. Once the two were face to face, though, I guess Eddie kind of got cold feet. And you can't really fault him, though. I mean, both he and his father had brief encounters with Claude in the past, and they both thought that he was more than a little on the dangerous side. And here he was, once again, just brazenly poaching an arm to the gills. So Eddie tried a little tact and gave Dallas a friendly warning about fish and game, saying that they were in the area often. Claude seemed unbothered, simply stating that when or if the game warden showed up, he'd be ready for him. The two also discussed trapping and came to a gentleman's agreement as to where Dallas would run his trap lines. Stipulations that Claude agreed to, albeit with the somewhat threatening disclaimer of, quote, I'm not a government man. I don't believe in law enforcement. If we have any trouble over trapping, it'll be personal trouble. I don't believe in man-made laws, end quote. Now, I don't know how you interpret that, but to me that means that if we have any problems... There's not going to be any consultant of lawyers or calling the police. We'll deal with it man to man. And seeing as how Claude wasn't really one to use his fist, I think we all know what dealing with it means. And I reckon that's how Eddie took it as well. Believe it or not, the Carlins did not immediately rush to tell authorities about Claude Dallas and his poaching camp. Wasn't until a few days later when they discovered illegally baited traps, set out by some altogether different trappers from Oregon, and finally said enough is enough. Remember, the Carlins ran traps as well, and the last thing they needed was the game wardens thinking it was them. They damn sure didn't want to lose their grazing rights. And just to give you an idea of how remote this area was back in 1980, they didn't even have a phone there on the ranch. Don and Eddie had to drive two hours away to a nearby reservation just to call a game warden who they knew by the name of Bill Pogue. Now Pogue, ironically enough, had cited Don Carlin in the past for a minor offense. The 50-year-old Marine Corps veteran and former Winnemucca police chief had a reputation as being a stickler to the law, which is one of the main reasons that the Carlins called him. Pogue also knew the Owyhee like the back of his damn hand. An avid bird watcher, amateur artist, and all-around conservationist, Bill Pogue spent quite a bit of his free time in the desert just snapping photos and banding birds. Hell, he liked the Owyhee so much that he even asked his wife Dee to make sure that he was buried there. According to Jack Olson and Give a Boy a Gun, when Bill received a call that night from the Carlins at around 10 p.m., he didn't so much as hesitate to head out, despite the Owyhee no longer being his official territory. Quote, Of course he had to go. He always had to go. The phone would ring at 3 a.m., and he, Bill, would leave to put an injured deer out of its misery or pull some fool out of the mud or help find a lost horse. And if the call was from his old district, the Owyhee, he went twice as fast and for half as much reason, end quote. 
According to D, Bill explained that if Don Carlin drove all that far just to get to a telephone, then it must be serious, and he felt like it was the least he could do to leave immediately. As such, Poe kissed his wife goodbye and set out with fellow game warden, Conley Elms. Now, initially, Bill had called Conley's brother, Michael, who, as it turns out, was the actual conservation officer assigned to the Owyhee. Mike was unavailable, though as was the next warden who Bill tried, so finally he gave the 34-year-old Conley a ring. In addition to being highly respected by their peers in fish and game, both Pogue and Elms were family men. Bill and his wife Dee had four kids, and although Conley and his bride Sherry couldn't have children, they were in the process of adopting a baby girl from India. Matter of fact, the paperwork was already complete, and Conley had even picked out their new daughter's name all on his own. Aaliyah Karan meant ray of sunshine in Hindi. Sadly, Conley Elms, a man described by many as a big, lovable bear, would never have the pleasure of meeting little Aaliyah, nor would he ever see his wife Sherry again. Likewise for Bill Pogue and his wife and kids. Neither of the conservation officers knew they were about to confront Claude Dallas when they initially set out for the 45 Ranch. Far as they knew, the Carlins were just bitching about illegal traps. It wasn't until they showed up at the ranch the next morning, January 5th, 1981, that Eddie's wife let it slip that Dallas was in the vicinity, poaching bobcats. Now, in the future, a Waihee County Sheriff, Tim Nettleton, would recall a warning that he had received from Bill Pogue a few years prior. Apparently, somebody had been heavily poaching in the southwest part of the county and moving the fur through a bar over in northern Nevada. Sound familiar? Pogue cautioned Nettleton, saying, quote, that trapper's a dirty little mean son of a bitch. If you ever get around him, watch out, end quote. Now, whether or not that trapper in question was Claude Dallas or not is unknown. And when Eddie Carlin's wife mentioned Claude's name, it didn't seem like Pogue was overly concerned. Following a nice breakfast, Eddie led the officers to the first of the illegal traps, the ones set by them boys from Oregon. In turn, they asked Eddie to follow the trap line back to the ranch and pull up any bobcat sets that he might happen to come across. As for Pogue and Elms, they pushed on ahead, stopping briefly to cite Oregon trapper Don Carter for hanging bait before continuing on to Claude's camp. And as it turns out, they were not the only visitors. Damn, this area sure is crowded for being so remote. Jim Stevens, a potato farmer from Nevada, had just arrived in the basin with a Chevy Blazer full of supplies for Dallas. Stevens had been one of the guys who initially helped Claude set up camp, and he agreed to return every so often with fresh supplies, as he was doing on this fateful day in question. By the time the game warden showed up, the provisions had already been unloaded, and Stevens was down by the river playing with his metal detector. I guess he saw Claude speaking with the officers, so he headed over to see what the deal was. Now, Jim was armed. Had him a little Model 19 Smith & Wesson, which Bill Pogue immediately took and unloaded, pocketing the shells before handing the gun back to Jim. He and Elms had already done the same thing to Claude, but unfortunately, they were unaware of the backup 357 Magnum that Dallas had concealed in his jacket. According to Stevens, Pogue and Elms just wanted to talk, and there wasn't really anything overtly aggressive about them initially, other than Pogue seeming to be a little standoffish. The officers pointed out an illegal mule deer hanging up in camp, which Dallas defended by saying that he had to eat. Hell, this far out from civilization, a man would starve if he had to follow every little damn letter of the law. 
an argument the bill countered by stating that the law neither differentiated nor cared about Claude's ability to feed himself. Stevens would later remember Pogue at this point, almost taking on the tone of a drill sergeant as he spoke to Dallas. And as the conversation continued, he could have sworn he heard one of the officers say the word arrest, as in they would have to arrest Claude for poaching. In turn, Dallas insisted on seeing a search warrant before they went inside of his tent. Now, I'm actually not too sure how relevant a warrant would have been in this situation. I actually spoke with two different game wardens, one in Texas and one in Idaho, and I got two different answers. There's a misconception I've heard my entire life about game wardens being able to search anyone's property at any time without a warrant. And that is not true. They can't just come inside your house and start poking around inside your freezer without a search warrant. That said, much in the same way that a police officer can enter your home with probable cause, you know, let's say he were to show up at the door just to talk, but then if he saw something illegal occurring inside, he then does not need a warrant. I'm relatively certain that this also applies for game wardens, especially in a situation like this where there were just so many signs of poaching right out there in the open. I think... Like I said, I'm still a little confused about the legality, but from my very limited conversations with game wardens, it sounds like searching a tent without a warrant would just be sort of a case-by-case basis. Nevertheless, Conley Elms did enter Claude's tent without a warrant, and he returned with an armful of stretched furs as Dallas and Poe continued arguing. Now here's the thing. It was not yet bobcat season there in Idaho by something like four or five days. It was, however, just a few miles south in Nevada. Dallas even said as much, letting Pogue know that he would just tell the judge he harvested the hides in Nevada. At this point, Stevens, who stated that he felt embarrassed for Claude, had turned back toward the river with his metal detector. He was still listening, though, and remembered hearing more talk about illegal cats and citations, and then Dallas asking the officers flat out whether or not they were going to take him in. Mere seconds later, a gunshot rang out. Stevens whirled around just in time to witness Bill Pogue falling backwards as Dallas, crouching down and holding that 357 in both hands, emptied the gun into Conley Elms. As Pogue and Elms lay on the ground, Pogue still alive and struggling to get up, Dallas went inside that tent and came out with a 22 rifle, delivering a single shot into the heads of both game wardens, trapper style, just behind the ear. As I'm sure you can imagine, Jim Stevens was scared shitless. What was supposed to be a leisurely camping trip with the hero mountain man of Paradise Hill just turned into a damn murder scene. And as far as Jim knew, Claude might be itching to dispose of the one and only witness. That wasn't the case, though. While Dallas didn't seem to show any remorse for killing the officers, he was at least apologetic for getting Stevens mixed up in it. He also informed Jim that he was going to need his help getting rid of the bodies. Now this part I don't really understand. They were successful in loading Bill Pogue in the back of Stevens' blazer, but Conley Elms, who, as I alluded to earlier, was a pretty big dude, was not able to be so easily moved. At one point, Claude actually remarked that the only way they'd be able to get rid of Elms was by quartering him like a deer and hauling him out in pieces. In the end, though, Dallas simply dumped Conley into the river. And that's the part I don't get. You know, why dispose of one body and not the other? I get the idea of making bodies disappear. Without a body, it's pretty damn hard to convict. But if you're just going to leave one of the victims floating in a river, why not both? 
What's the purpose of going through the trouble of hauling Pogue out when Conley's still there for anyone to find? Maybe it was just the confusion of the situation, the shock of it all. I don't know. There was an attempt to cover up bloodstains. One spot in particular, Dallas even set on fire. Once again, not sure why, but hey, what do I know? Once they had Pogue's body secured in the blazer, the pair wasted no time driving straight for Paradise Hill and Claude's surrogate father, the shit-stirring pussyhound himself, George Nielsen. It was the middle of the night by the time they got there, and Dallas woke George and his wife Liz up, explaining what had happened and asking for help in disposing of Bill Pogue's body. Funny thing, though. George, for all his blunder and rhetoric, got mighty nervous when Dallas showed up with a dead game warden in tow. He, much like Jim Stevens, wanted nothing to do with the dead man in the back of that blazer. But I guess he still felt obligated to help. Either that or he was worried about what Claude might do if he tried to turn him away. After a few stout drinks to calm their nerves, it was decided that Jim would return home, sanitize the blazer, and begin practicing his alibi. Before leaving, he helped to move Pogue's body to the back of George's pickup. According to Nielsen, Dallas returned a couple hours later, sans body, and then he had George get behind the wheel and drop him off about 13 miles away on the side of a gravel road. Now, I'm not sure about you, but if a friend of mine, any friend, showed up at my place in the middle of the night with a dead body looking for a little help, I'm going to go ahead and go with a hard hell no. Sorry, man. I'll write you letters. I'll visit you in prison, maybe. But you're going to have to get out of here with that damn body. In all seriousness, though, I get it. Stevens was scared out of his mind. I'm sure he was in shock at having witnessed the killing of two men, and he was just going along with things and hoping like hell he didn't end up as victim number three. I'm sure George was also shaken. I mean, yeah, he talked a lot of shit, but talking and doing are two completely different matters. Once it came down to the nut cutting, or more accurately put, the federal agent killing, turns out George's bark was a whole lot worse than his bite. Yet he did go along with it in the moment. Guess he figured if worse comes to worse, he and Jim could just claim they were in fear of their lives. Which, in all honesty, they probably were. That said, I think it quickly dawned on both men that if they remained silent, if they just pretended like nothing had happened even after Dallas was gone, they'd be implicating themselves. And I don't guess neither George or Jim Stevens were willing to go to prison on account of their good buddy, Claude Dallas. Next morning, once some of that adrenaline wore off, they both went to the authorities together and spilt the beans, explained what had happened and that it was Dallas who killed Bill Pogue and Conley Elms. In no time flat, Owyhee County Sheriff Tim Nettleton began coordinating efforts and the hunt was on, both for Dallas and the remains of Pogue and Elms. Now Conley was located fairly quickly, as he was still right there in the river where Claude had dumped him. As for Bill Pogue, nobody knew where the hell he had been taken, not even George Nielsen. And Claude Dallas? Shit, man. He could have been anywhere. You know, earlier I talked about how desolate and remote the Owyhee Desert was. But the same goes for damn near the entirety of northern Nevada. I mean, you go north from Winnemucca, and you'll hit the Bloody Run Hills and the Santa Rosa Mountains, both of which Dallas was very familiar with. Head west, and you'll end up in the Black Rock Desert, and to the east, you'll find the Bull Run Range. We already established how Claude bragged about having ammo caches hidden all over the place, and he had spent the better part of a decade hiking and hunting and trapping in this entire area. If Claude Dallas didn't want to be found, then good fucking luck. And yeah, for over a year, Dallas was successful in evading capture, hiding out in caves and living off the land, mountain man style. 
making cold camps and keeping a lonely watch from the top of cliffs where he had a commanding view of his surroundings for miles in each direction. A fugitive to some and to others, a hero. A man whose only crime was standing his ground and trying to live life on his own terms. Or at least that's the common perception. As it turns out, we now have a pretty decent idea as to what Claude got up to after Nielsen dropped him off on the side of the road. And spoiler alert, it ain't got nothing to do with living off-grid or hiding out in caves. In fact, that very night after leaving Paradise Hill, Dallas hiked to one of his buddies' houses where he laid low for a few days before heading north, burying what was left of the incriminating evidence, including the pistols he took off of Pogue and Elms. From there, Dallas pushed east to South Dakota, working in a steel mill for a few weeks under an assumed name, before heading down to Houston where his brother lived. Not for long, though. Turns out Claude had another brother in Mendocino County, California, with whom he visited for a spell. And then, just like the good book says, as a dog returns to its own vomit, Dallas headed straight back to northern Nevada, where he was taken in and given refuge by various friends who were sympathetic to his plight. Remember, Dallas was somewhat of a living legend there in Humboldt County. The narrative was that a guy like Claude would never go looking for trouble, and if he really did kill those game wardens, well, they must have had it coming. Bill Pogue was especially smeared as being a dangerous antagonizer and a routine abuser of authority. We'll get to that in a moment. Even George Nielsen was back up on his pedestal, talking big and bold and saying that if Dallas showed up, he'd help him out in any way he could. Other locals looking to aid Dallas began leaving their trucks unlocked with the keys inside, along with coolers full of beer and sandwiches. There was a $20,000 reward, however, for information leading to Dallas's arrest. And $20,000 is a lot of money, especially back in 1981, and especially in rural Nevada. As such, it was only a matter of time before the FBI was tipped off to Claude's location. Surprise, surprise, he was hiding out right there in Paradise Hill in a buddy's trailer. The friend in question, Mike Carver, was a fellow gun enthusiast and not a big fan of the federal government, to say the least. Now, it's worth mentioning that during Claude's time on the lam, the authorities had raided his old trailer there behind the bar and confiscated dozens of weapons in the process, along with a ton of books on military and police tactics and shit like gas masks. So, needless to say, the police were well aware that any encounter with Dallas could, and most likely would, turn deadly. That being the case, they didn't take no chances. The FBI, along with local law enforcement from at least two counties and a SWAT team out of Las Vegas quickly assembled and prepared for a fight. Hell, they even had a Huey and a damn Cessna flying air cover. So it were on April 18th, 1982, right around 6 p.m., that this joint force made their move, surrounding the trailer and calling for Claude to come on out with his hands up. That's when things got a little dramatic. Dallas came out all right, but he had no intention of surrendering. Like something straight out of a movie, here comes Claude flying out of a window and making a run for it diving headfirst into a nearby pickup and peeling off down the road. During the ensuing chase, Dallas began taking shots at both the pursuing vehicles as well as that plane flying above him. And you better believe the officers were returning fire, peppering Claude's truck until it veered off the road and stalled out. Quick as a flash, Dallas belled and made his way out into the brush, law enforcement right behind him. Now this could have turned out pretty bad if Claude was looking to make a real stand of it. After all, he was still armed and like a damn cornered animal at this point, and he was almost certainly watching the SWAT team as they cautiously approached. Luckily, the cards were in their favor. I guess Dallas had a change of heart, and as one of the officers moved forward, he heard a voice call out, Don't shoot, I'm over here. It was Dallas, lying on his back with his arms up in the air, 
22 minutes after the operation commenced, and over 15 months following the murder of Pogue and Elms, the manhunt was finally over, and Claude Dallas was taken into custody. He had been slightly wounded in the chase, either a ricochet or shrapnel had shredded his ankle up a bit, but aside from that, he was alright. Initially, Dallas was placed in jail up in Owyhee County, where the crime occurred, but his attorney successfully petitioned for a change of venue, and he was transported some 60 miles to the north to Caldwell, Idaho. It's there, five months later, on September 15th, that the trial finally commenced. And while Dallas was technically charged with two counts of first-degree murder, along with the use of firearm and the commission of a felony, resisting arrest, and the destruction or concealment of evidence, the entire trial soon became centered around whether or not Bill Pogue was an asshole. The defense team introduced witness after witness to discredit the character of Mr. Pogue, accusing him of being a hostile bully and overly aggressive. One especially convincing witness, a minister, even testified that Pogue had once pulled a gun on him. Others said that whenever they were confronted by Bill, he would always have his hand on the butt of his revolver just to intimidate him, and that it was only a matter of time until someone got hurt. The lone witness to the killings, Jim Stevens, also testified, pretty much reiterating everything we've already covered. You know, he had been looking away from the men toward the river when he heard someone shout out, Oh no, followed by a gunshot. Turning quickly, Stevens saw Pogue fall to the ground and Claw turn his revolver on Elms. This, of course, was followed by Dallas fetching that 22 long rifle for the coup de grace. The only problem with Stevens' testimony, something that the defense team absolutely fixated on, was the fact he couldn't remember exactly what it was that drew his attention from the river back to the confrontation. Was it the gunshot he heard first or someone yelling out, oh no? Apparently, he got these details mixed up on more than one occasion, and this lapse of memory, coupled with a few other inconsistencies, made Jim look pretty bad to the jury. One juror even noted that Claude never looked at Stevens, indicating that maybe there was bad blood between the two of them, and another thought that Jim said words like, I don't know, maybe, and I'm not sure, too many times during his eight-hour cross-examination to be taken seriously. Jim was the state's star witness. And if his testimony was any indication, things just weren't going all that well for the prosecution. A development that was only solidified by Claude himself taking the stand. To the surprise of absolutely nobody that knew him, Dallas came off as a very sympathetic figure. Hell, even the damn prosecuting attorney would later admit that Dallas was a, quote, gentle-looking guy with an expressive, intelligent face. You wanted to pat him on the head and tell him that everything would be okay, end quote. Now, Claude readily admitted to killing Pogue and Elms, but he contended that it was in self-defense, testifying that they had both been unduly aggressive from the get-go. He claimed that Bill Pogue's hand went to the butt of his revolver every time anyone made a move, and that he repeatedly told Dallas that he could go in easy or go in hard, insinuating that he could allow himself to be arrested or just get killed. Finally, Claude asserted that it was Bill Pogue who drew first, and that he had even managed to get a shot off before he, Dallas, could return fire. As far as poor Conley Elms was concerned, Claude said he was just acting on instinct when he shot him. He then claimed to have been in a daze and unable to explain why he went and got that 22 from the tent and finished both men off with a single shot to the head. Just caught up in the moment, I guess. Finally, in a move to garner additional sympathy from the jury, Claude agreed to disclose the location of Bill Pogue's remains. Yeah, you heard that correctly. Mr. Pogue's body had still not been recovered. Remember, this trial started in mid-September 1982, almost two years after the incident in question. 
Despite Pogue's family begging and pleading, Claude had remained silent this entire time. Rather than give the family closure, Dallas and or his attorney simply waited for the trial to gain extra points. Of course, the jury didn't know all that. Now, it's worth noting that Bill Pogue's revolver, the one piece of evidence that could prove or disprove Dallas's claims of self-defense, has never been recovered, even to this day. Dallas, by golly, just can't for the life of him remember where he hid that dang pistol. How convenient. It's also worth taking a moment to describe Claude's physical appearance during the trial. While he had most certainly looked the part of a wild mountain man at the time of his arrest, with long hair and a full beard, Dallas's attorney saw to it that he received a full makeover before the trial. As such, the jury was presented with a quiet and shy-looking young man, with short, neatly cut hair and clean-shaven, save for a well-trimmed mustache. You know, I mentioned earlier that Dallas was what many would consider a very attractive man. And these attributes absolutely served him well during the trial. How so alluring was Claude that a group of housewives calling themselves the Dallas Cheerleaders began showing up at court every day just to cheer him on. They were even allowed to sit in the courtroom and pass notes back and forth to Dallas and his lawyer. One of these so-called cheerleaders was quoted as saying the following about Claude. There's something about him. I think some of the women in our group might be in love with him. Emotionally involved, not really love, but infatuation. He emits a charisma. He's the type of man that most women would admire his lifestyle. The fact that he's his own person, his reputation and all. He's a survivalist, a man's man. And yet when it comes right down to the nitty gritty, he's not a wishy-washy. He's not going to get down on his hands and knees and scrape and bow. End quote. Others of the group contested that nobody as honest appearing and hardworking as Claude could have possibly killed two men in cold blood. As if that's something you can tell just by looking at someone. You know, it seems like I remember there was another attractive, charismatic guy that people felt the same way about. What the hell was his name? Uh, what was? Oh yeah, Ted Bundy. Ultimately, what Dallas's trial came down to was an inexperienced prosecuting attorney versus a defense team who successfully convinced the jury that Bill Pogue was a jerk and left the charming, attractive, and soft-spoken Claude Dallas no other choice but to protect himself. There's a lot more involved, obviously. If you'd like to learn more, I would highly recommend the book that I keep mentioning, Give a Boy a Gun. I'm not sure if the court transcripts are readily available, but I think Jim Stevens' testimony alone is something like 130 pages. But long story short, after the longest jury deliberation in all of Idaho history, Claude Dallas was found not guilty of the murder of Game Warden's Bill Pogue and Conley Elms. Not guilty. Remember, he and his attorney were pushing that self-defense angle hard. Dallas claimed that Pogue drew first, and I guess that gave the jury all the reasonable doubt they needed. Still didn't get off scot-free, though. Far from it, as the jury did find Claude guilty of two counts of manslaughter, along with a couple of counts of using a firearm to commit a felony and a simple misdemeanor for concealing evidence. Certainly not the murder in the first that the prosecution or the families of the victims were hoping for, but still, despite the jury, for the most part, being sympathetic to Dallas, the presiding judge was not. He still gave Claude the maximum penalty allowed by law, which in this case ended up being 30 years in prison. The sentence was handed down in January of 1983, and barring an appeal, Claude Dallas wouldn't breathe free air again until the year 2013, at which time he'd be in his early 60s. Now just one more quick note on the trial. It's my opinion, for what it's worth, 
They had Dallas not finished off Pogue and Elms with a single shot to the head with that 22. He would have almost certainly have been acquitted. That is the one thing that the jurors, some of them at least, just couldn't get over. It's almost beyond defense. Only reason I say almost is because I have heard people try to defend it. Even going so far as saying that Dallas was being compassionate and simply putting both men out of their misery. As for Claude, remember, he still said he did not know why he did it, stating, quote, I was a little bit out of my head at that stage. I was afraid and I was wound up, end quote. Nonetheless, like I said, Dallas got 30 years and he soon began his sentence at the Idaho State Prison. And I don't think anyone could have predicted what happened next. In March of 1986, after just three years behind bars, Dallas managed to escape. Story goes that he got his hands on some bolt cutters and removed a portion of the chain link fence surrounding the prison yard and just sort of slipped on out. That may not be what really happened, though. For years following the escape, certain officials questioned this narrative, citing conflicting accounts and contradictory physical evidence, and even going so far as reopening an investigation back in 2001. Although there have been no official conclusions made, at least that I'm aware of, Evidence suggests that Claude took advantage of a poorly guarded visiting area and just simply strolled on out. Either way, by 1986, Dallas was once more on the run. And just like before, there was a massive manhunt. How Claude even made his way onto the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. And this time, Dallas really did disappear into the wilderness. Putting all that survival know-how of his to use and living off of nothing but antelope jerky and spring water as he took shelter in various caves and mining shafts. Uh, no, <laughs> that did not happen at all. Just like before, Dallas was not hiding out in the wilderness like some sort of a modern-day Jim Bridger. While he did return to both Nevada and Oregon, he wouldn't stay in one spot too long. Dallas also made a trip down to Mexico for a little plastic surgery, just in an attempt to alter his appearance before heading west to California and laying low. It's there on March 8, 1987, in the town of Riverside, after nearly a year on the run, that the authorities finally caught up with him. Claude was surrounded at a convenience store while buying peanut butter and a loaf of bread, and he offered himself up with zero resistance. There was another trial, and once again, people felt sorry for poor old Dallas. According to him, the prison guards in Idaho had been threatening his life, and he felt like he had no other recourse but to escape. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to see a pattern here. It worked, though. Dallas was fully acquitted, believe it or not, and while he was sent back to prison to finish his sentence, he would receive no additional time for the escape. Hell, in fact, he'd end up getting eight years taken off of his sentence for good behavior. And the best part is, he didn't even have to go back to them mean guards in Idaho. Claude did time in Nebraska, New Mexico, and Kansas before being released for good on February 6, 2005. All total, Dallas has served 22 years behind bars. And as of this recording, he remains a free man, just shy of his 74th birthday. Claude pretty much keeps to himself, refuses interviews, makes no public appearances, and evidently does one hell of a job at protecting his privacy. The big question everybody seems to want an answer to is, where is Claude Dallas today? Well, according to Wikipedia, so big grain of salt, Dallas has been sighted in Utah, Nevada, and even as far away as Alaska. And a simple Google search led me to a Reddit forum where one user stated Claude was driving a shuttle bus for river rafters up in Idaho. Another echoed the same, only according to him, it was Montana. For what it's worth, I have had a few listeners of the Wild West Extravaganza reach out over the years, 
and one in particular even has a personal connection to Claude. I won't say his name, but this source in question is a former member of law enforcement who investigated Dallas shortly after his release. According to him, not too long ago, Claude was located by a fish and game cop in northern Nevada, out in the middle of nowhere, but the officer got spooked and nothing came of it. This jives with another listener who emailed me saying that he also ran into Claude at a gas station in that same area. Honestly, man, I don't think anybody truly knows, at least not anybody who's willing to talk. Per that former police officer I just mentioned, Claude spends a good deal of time up in Alaska where he's able to legally carry black powder firearms. His privacy is heavily protected by people who still consider him sort of a folk hero, and Dallas may even have linked up with the Bundy family of Nevada, Eamon and Cliven Bundy, not Ted. I'm not sure if there's any hard proof for any of this, but if that is true, it would make sense, right? Especially considering their shared anti-government sentiments. Once again, per the police officer's source, Claw built up somewhat of a cult following while in prison and at one point was labeled as a domestic terrorist. But he also added that he's not sure if Dallas is currently labeled as such. Now, much like Wikipedia, you gotta take this with a grain of salt, right? I have no reason to doubt this guy. I'm pretty sure he's telling the truth. But then again, I'm also not an investigative journalist, nor do I have the ability or inclination to go around vetting people. For all I know, he's completely full of shit. I don't think that's the case, but you never know. So yeah, Claude Dallas is still alive. He's still out there, probably in Alaska or Idaho or Nevada. But nobody with any details is willing to talk. So yeah, man, that's Claude Dallas in a nutshell. I know there are many who think he was a victim and even a hero. Just a guy born a century too late, trying to avoid the trappings of civilization and live life on his own terms. Only our modern society just wouldn't let him be. Those in power kept after him, and finally, after being confronted by an overly aggressive representative of the federal government, Dallas had enough and pushed back. But is that really a fair portrayal? And just how justified was Claude when it came to shooting those game wardens, Pogue and Elms? Was justice served? According to the only eyewitness, Jim Stevens, there was a pistol in the hands of Bill Pogue as he lay dead on the ground. I think the only question is, did he draw that gun before or after Dallas went for his? Remember, Claude stated that Pogue not only drew first, but he even got a shot off before Dallas was able to put him down. Unfortunately, and let's face it, conveniently, Pogue's pistol was disposed of by Claude and never located. As such, we'll likely never know for sure if the gun had been fired or not. Then there's the fact that so many people swore up and down that Bill Pogue was an abuser of authority. Even his own peers admitted that Pogue took his job very seriously and considered all infractions equal, whether it was just kids throwing rocks at birds or someone like Dallas illegally and repeatedly poaching bobcats and shooting bighorn. Then again, Bill Pogue had spent 25 years as a conservation officer, in addition to serving as chief of police in Winnemucca, and he had never previously shot anybody, not once. During the trial, there was a lot of testimony from people who didn't like the way that Pogue spoke to him but I'm not aware of him physically assaulting or even so much as laying his hands on anybody other than to place them under arrest. All of a sudden, he runs into Claude Dallas, somebody who had made previous threats about using deadly force, and lo and behold, things turned deadly. Devil's advocate, but one could theorize that Dallas was the first person that Bill ever leaned on who truly stood up for himself. Maybe everybody else folded under Pogue's tyrannical ways, whereas Claude stood his ground. Okay, maybe, but I'm still not buying it. 
I mean, what the hell would have been the purpose of murdering Dallas for a mere trapping violation? Or just for an out-of-season mule deer? Pogue may have been an asshole cop, I don't know. Sorry for those of you in law enforcement listening right now, but you do know that some of your brothers in blue can be dicks on occasion. Not all of them, not even the majority, but we all know police officers who enjoy throwing their weight around. That said, there's a big difference between abusing authority and cold-blooded murder. Or maybe Pogue was planning on using that gun as a form of intimidation, which, according to some, he had done in the past. Bill may have had no actual intention of using the gun, but there would have been no way for Claude to know that. I mean, shit, you pull a gun out on me, I don't care who you are, I'm still going to try and defend myself. But at the same time, we also got to take Claude's reputation into account. Numerous people stated that he seemed to be spoiling for a fight for quite some time, and that he had a quote-unquote itchy trigger finger. Dallas had joked about killing government officials, and he made no bones about his hatred of conservation officers and a strong disdain for game laws in general. Per his own friends, he threatened, on more than one occasion, to resort to deadly force if he felt like he was being unjustly arrested. And by unjustly arrested, I do mean arrested for knowingly and continuously breaking the law for years. The way I see it, there are three possible scenarios. First, there's Dallas's version. The game wardens were being overly aggressive. One of them, Bill Pogue, went for a gun, and Dallas reacted. In which case, I do think his actions would be justifiable. Badge or no badge, I don't believe anybody has a right to just gun you down because they feel like it or just because they don't like your attitude. I don't think that's what happened, though. I just came for the life of me, wrapped my head around Pogue, deciding, for whatever reason, that that was the day he was going to just murder somebody for the hell of it. And in front of witnesses. Remember, the man had been in some form of law enforcement for damn near three decades, and he had never, not once, busted a cap on somebody. Being an asshole and being a cold-blooded killer don't necessarily go hand in hand. Which brings us to scenario number two. Dallas is extremely on edge. Per usual, he believes it's his God-given right to trap and hunt where and when and how he damn well pleases. And he's tired of game wardens bothering him about it. He'd been itching for a fight for a while now, and when Pogue and Elms looked like they was going to arrest him, rather than simply issue a citation, he snapped and went for his gun. Finally got a chance to play out all those gunfighter fantasies of his and put those long hours of training into use. While I do find this scenario more plausible than the previous one, I'm also not entirely convinced that that's what happened either. Claw may have been half an outlaw, but I don't necessarily think he was a psychopath. And the man wasn't stupid. It's one thing to talk tough when you're sitting at a bar, but in all actuality, Dallas had to have known that he'd have gotten off with yet another slap on the wrist, just like he always did. Worst case scenario, Pogan Elms would arrest him, haul him into town, he'd be forced to pay a fine, and within a week or two, he'd be right back out there, trapping and hunting as he pleased. Then there's scenario number three, somewhere in the middle. Both Pogue and Dallas are being hard-headed. Claude gets argumentative, and when the issue of a possible arrest arises, he starts to act like he's not going to allow himself to be cuffed without a fight. Pogue, either in an attempt to intimidate Dallas or simply ensure that he and Elms were safe, drops his hand to rest on the butt of his revolver. And that's when Claude, possibly taking it as a threat to his life, went for that 357. Or maybe Pogue just saw the print of that hidden revolver in Claude's jacket, causing him to go for his own firearm. Maybe Dallas made a funny or sudden movement, and then all hell broke loose. I do not believe that Bill Pogue was looking to kill Claude Dallas. I also don't think that Dallas necessarily had any intention of things escalating to that point either. 
at least not initially. It was an unfortunate, volatile situation. Mistakes were made, and two men, by most accounts two good men, ended up dead. All because Claude Dallas couldn't be bothered to trap in season. Now all that said, if the testimony of Jim Stevens is to be believed, I may be giving Dallas way too much credit. According to Stevens, immediately after killing Pogan Elms, Claude stated something along the lines of, I swore I'd never be arrested again. They were going to handcuff me. He didn't say, oh, I had no choice. Pogue was drawing his gun. He didn't say he was afraid for his life or anything like that. No, he just didn't want to go to jail. Also, Stevens claimed that Dallas had said he considered killing both game wardens up on the ridge before they ever came into camp. If these statements are true, then I don't think it really matters how much of an asshole Bill Pogue was. Dallas had been fantasizing about killing somebody and even about being on the run for years. And now he finally had his chance. And let's not forget about him grabbing that 22 and putting a round in each man's head. Like I said a few minutes ago, I have heard people try to defend that. Uh, one person in particular, it was on another podcast, basically said that Dallas did it out of compassion. He knew they were too far out in the backcountry to get proper medical care, and there was no way Pogue and Elms would survive, so he just put them out of their misery. I've even heard that Dallas ultimately was just looking out for his mules. That he knew if he was arrested, they'd just be left behind to die in the canyon. But come on, bro. Do you really believe that? Do you really think he killed two men just in order to save his mules? Which he ended up leaving behind anyway, by the way, when he fled the scene of the crime. Do you really believe that Dallas dispatched those game wardens with that 22 out of compassion? Or is that just what you want to believe? Long story short, if Dallas was truly protecting his own life, if he reasonably felt like it was a shooter-be-shot situation, if Pogue was going for his gun, then okay, sure, he was justified. But once again, I'm just not convinced that's what happened. Claude finishing off both men with that 22, and then him forgetting where he hid Pogue's revolver. But once again, I'm just not convinced that's what happened. At the end of the day, only God and Dallas know for sure what happened. If I, as a mere podcaster, were forced to wager as to what exactly went down, I'd say that Dallas was spoiling for a fight and it wasn't going to take much to push him over the edge. I think as he and Pogue were arguing, Pogue's hand probably got a little too close to the butt of his revolver for Dallas's liking. In turn, Dallas went for that 357 in his jacket, which naturally caused both Pogue and Elms to go for their guns. Only thing is, Dallas was faster, and that was that. Now, something I didn't bring up earlier, but I think it's worth mentioning. Back after that trial ended, and Dallas was awaiting his sentence, he was actually out on bail and staying with his old friends at the Alford Ranch over in Oregon. And while there, he once again, allegedly and illegally, shot and killed a bighorn sheep. According to rancher Hoyt Wilson, quote, he goes up to where a band of prized bighorn sheep were hanging around, maybe a hundred of them. The state's been carefully building them up and they issue maybe six or eight tags for the whole mountain. You have to win one in a drawing. He, Dallas, shoots a mountain sheep and then puts it in our cold room and says we're going to eat this thing. Well, we couldn't have eaten it if we wanted to. It was a typical winter sheep. No fat, no nothing, just tough as could be. I was appalled. I don't think he'd have done that eight or ten years ago. He was so tickled, and that was more appalling than anything. At a time when you would think he'd be on his best behavior, but all he could think about was how he got this trophy ram. End quote. We know for a fact that Dallas had zero regard for fish and game laws. We know he was poaching long before that fateful day in Idaho when he gunned down Bill Pogue and Conley Elms. This is not up for debate. Even Claude's most ardent supporters will fully admit that he was killing animals out of season. 
And contrary to popular belief, Claude Dallas was not, in any way, shape, or form, a subsistence hunter. Not only did he have no need to be a subsistence hunter, but he was also routinely killing far more than he could ever possibly eat all by himself. In addition to getting all sorts of food and supplies delivered straight to his camp via automobile. It's not like Dallas was stranded out there in the Yukon, cut off from the rest of the world and struggling to survive. That's another thing. Nobody asked Dallas to move himself out there in the middle of bumfuck Idaho. By his own admission, he purposely placed himself in an environment where he claimed he needed to break the law in order to survive. Which he didn't really need to, but that's besides the point. That'd be like moving to a really nice neighborhood just because you feel like it or because it's where you want to live and then saying that it's okay to steal food from the grocery store because the rent's too expensive. This was not the 1800s and Dallas wasn't some pioneer trying to establish a homestead in the wilderness. The man was camped out on public land far longer than he was supposed to be in order to illegally harvest fur for profit. And while he was there, he made no bones about poaching well over his limit in venison. Just the fact that his buddies were hauling in supplies and food on the regular, including cakes and pies and shit like that, speaks volumes. Dallas was not just some modern-day mountain man trying to live a quiet and peaceful life. The man was essentially squatting on public land for the better part of a decade. If not longer, he had been needlessly and illegally harvesting game for both profit and pleasure, not subsistence. And look, man, shit happens. I get it. We've all known a few good old boys who don't necessarily follow the letter of the law when they're out in the woods. Whether it be filling somebody else's tags or occasionally shooting off the side of the road or what have you. I myself, when I was much younger and dumber, may or may not have allegedly once shot an illegal deer. Which I then allegedly took home and skinned and quartered before I fried up the alleged backstrap. And I may or may not have allegedly gone fishing in the past without a license. Okay, I'm not proud of these things, but rest assured, I'm not trying to make myself out to be some sort of a saint or holier than thou, because I'm not. I do know one thing, though. These laws serve a purpose. Bag limits, tags, seasons. It all helps to ensure that these animal populations remain healthy and that we can continue to enjoy hunting and fishing and all that for not only the rest of our lives, but for future generations as well. Market hunting was a motherfucker back in the day. Whether you're talking about the buffalo, beaver, black bears, you name it. Entire populations were decimated. And I know this is an anecdotal story, but the area where my dad grew up in, in the 1950s, they did not have white-tailed deer. None. They had plenty of hogs and stuff like that, but the deer had all been hunted out. Thankfully, they came back, and there's an abundance now. But the only way that rebound was possible was due to these conservation laws. The same laws that Claude Dallas was blatantly ignoring. Now, I know you already know all this, but I guess I'm just not sure why Dallas seems to get a pass in the eyes of so many. It's not like the man just got drunk once and went spotlighting with his buddies. You know, it's not like he accidentally shot a buck with a spread of slightly less than 13 inches. No, Dallas repeatedly and purposely, for well over a decade, wantonly killed animals for his own pleasure. And yeah, sometimes he ate some of the meat, and sometimes he sold some of the fur. Now, when it comes to Claude's anti-government beliefs, I'll be honest, I kind of struggled with what I wanted to say here. I mean, just that in and of itself could be its own episode. I was thinking about maybe going in deep on what it would be like growing up in the 1960s, you know, at a time when an extremely unpopular war was being fought overseas and having a very real chance of being forced to fight and possibly die in Vietnam. Then out west, you've got the Sagebrush Rebellion of the 1970s. 
clashes with ranchers and the BLM. Battles that are still ongoing to this day and movements that sort of paved the way for various radical militia types and extremist groups like the Sovereign Citizens. Now, I don't know which of these, Vietnam or the BLM, is what ultimately, for lack of a better word, radicalized Claude Dallas. Maybe a mixture of the two. Or maybe something else completely. I don't know. Maybe he just really didn't like being told how to live his life. And just for full transparency, although groups like the Sovereign Citizens do consider Dallas to be almost like one of their patron saints, I was not able to find any hard evidence linking him personally to that movement. At least not back in the 70s or 80s. You know, we can sit here and talk about how the FBI who arrested Claude back in 1973 said mean things to him. We could discuss how much he resented the BLM trying to tell ranchers what they could or couldn't do. Or how much he hated game wardens levying fines for trapping out of season. I can theorize all day, but I think it mostly just boils down to Dallas not liking other people trying to tell him what to do. And brother, I get it. Trust me. I myself have a very hard time with authority. Whether it's an aggressive police officer or even just a foreman at a job site who's let his perceived power go to his head, I cannot stand it. And don't even get me started on the mother-freaking HOA. I hate people who abuse their authority. I hate them. I know I'm not supposed to hate, but damn. I can't stand people effectively just bullying others because they have a little bit of authority. And that goes for everybody in positions of power. No matter how small, even teachers and ministers, anybody who abuses their power to control or intimidate others just really sticks in my craw. But at the same time, the fact that there are people out there who will abuse their authority does not give me the right to just do whatever the hell I want at the detriment of others. Once again, I'm not trying to say that all laws are perfect and that we should just line up like good little sheep and never question or buck the powers that be. There are game and fish laws that don't make any sense. There are stupid regulations. I get that. And the BLM certainly is not without fault. But you can't just sit here and say that Dallas was minding his own business, not doing anything wrong, and that those mean old game wardens were just out to get him. I know I keep saying this, but from 1969 all the way to 1980, Dallas knowingly and blatantly just thumbed his nose at the law. And he mostly got away with it. You know, for somebody who hated the federal government as much as he did, Dallas sure as hell enjoyed reaping the benefits. As a child, Claude went to public schools. He drove on public roads. He camped and hunted and trapped all over public land. And rather than be a good steward of that land, he instead went on a non-stop one-man poaching rampage, ultimately resulting in the murder of two men whose job it was to protect that land. Dallas was caught several times, but he always got off with a light slap on the wrist. A few fines here and there, maybe his guns were confiscated for short periods of time, but that's it. Even when he was arrested for dodging the draft, he got off without so much as a criminal record. Dude just basically did whatever the hell he felt like, breaking any and all laws as he saw fit, and somehow in his mind, and in the minds of many of his most ardent fans, he was the one being persecuted, and it was his rights that were unjustly being trampled upon. I don't know about you, but it's just not adding up for me. Now let's talk about whether or not justice was served. You know, do you think Dallas was sufficiently punished for his crimes? On one hand, for a guy accustomed to the great outdoors and living free and easy for the vast majority of his life, I gotta assume that being stuck in a cage for over two decades and eating nothing but prison food had to have been pure hell. And truth be told, as far as the judicial system is concerned, justice was served, whether we like it or not. 
Dallas was tried by a jury of his peers and handed down the maximum penalty for the crime he was convicted of. Not sure the family and friends of Conley Elms and Bill Pogue would agree, though. And if I was in their shoes, I'm not sure I'd agree either. Matter of fact, I know I wouldn't. You know, I have no doubt that Dallas was a hard worker. I'm positive he was, and probably still is, about as tough as they come. One hell of a cowboy, and the type of guy who knew how to take care of himself in the backcountry. By all accounts, he was loyal to his friends, and when he gave his word, he stuck to it. Never shirked a job, and wasn't afraid to put in a hard day's work. All very admirable traits. Unfortunately, Dallas also had a dark side. He purposely broke any and all game laws as he saw fit, and he mostly got away with it. When confronted, he began making threats. And finally, sadly, he followed through on those threats and gunned down two good men. Men with families that still miss them very much to this day. And I guess that's about all I've got on Claude Dallas. But what do you think? As usual, please email me, josh at wildwestextra.com, and let me know what's on your mind. What did I get wrong? What did I get right? Do you agree with any of my conclusions? Hit me up and let me know what you think, or just leave a comment down below. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, just real quick before you go, you may have noticed this was originally uploaded yesterday. The first half, at least. At the very end, I announced that part two would only be available on Into History, a subscription platform that I'm currently working with. And that's with a seven-day free trial, by the way. The operative word being free. And oh boy, talk about kicking that hornet's nest. This apparently angered quite a few people, some of whom accused me of quote-unquote hustling, while others simply celebrated my imminent financial ruin. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. My initial reaction to such people is a very enthusiastic, go fuck yourself, especially considering that damn near everything I put out is 100% free to the public. You know, I'm just not a big fan of people demanding things of me, and I damn sure don't respond well to threats. Still, though, I am an adult. I don't like going off half-cocked. I'm a full cock kind of guy, if you know what I mean. And I truly do want to give people what they want, especially that core audience. You know, I got a lot of people out there who've been with me for years now, people I care about. And in all honesty, I can absolutely understand how being asked to go from one platform to another just to hear the end of a story could be frustrating. You know, maybe I should have explained it better from the get-go. Maybe I shouldn't have waited until the very end, you know, once you've already invested an hour's worth of your time, to mention, oh, by the way, part two's only going to be available behind a so-called paywall. That's on me. Was the paywall free? Yes, it was. But anyway, beside the point, I made the executive decision to go ahead and release the entire thing here for free in its entirety. Your complaints were heard. I am a man of the people, and daddy aims to please. I do know there were some who did indeed subscribe to Into History. If you're one of them and the only reason you signed up was for part two, and if for some reason you didn't sign up with the free seven-day trial, then please send me an email and I will make sure you get a full refund. I guarantee it, even if I got to pay out of my own pocket. Josh at wildwestextra.com. You know, when you're doing anything like this, whether it's a podcast or performing music or even writing a book, there's always going to be a certain amount of haters. People will find any reason at all to bitch and moan. That's just the nature of the world we live in. The perpetually aggrieved will never be placated, no matter what you do. Trust me. So you develop a thick skin, and you just ignore the haters. But you can't ignore everybody. Or I guess I should say you should not ignore everybody. You gotta learn how to read the room. Now, I've gotten some really great constructive feedback from you over the years 
Feedback has helped me improve the quality of this show immensely, and for that, I am forever grateful. For someone like me who's essentially just running a business, you can't have all your eggs in one basket. You got to try different things, and some of those stick, and others don't. You learn and you move on. And I think yesterday, for me at least, it was definitely a learning experience. All that said, if you're listening to this right now and you are one of those who wished ruin upon me yesterday, if you're a negative Nancy who just goes around consuming free content but still feeling the need to bitch and moan about every little thing, honestly, I would rather you unsubscribe. You are not the type of person I want listening to the Wild West extravaganza. I don't want people like that around anything that I touch. They're what I call the kiss of death, just deeply unfulfilled with their own personal lives, so they're bound and determined to make you feel the same way, if you let them. The trick is not letting them. So if that's you, no need to tell me that you're unsubscribing, no need to tell me that you're not listening anymore. Just simply don't listen. I assure you, you're not going to hurt my feelings any. You go your way and I'll go my way. And everybody else, I fucking love you. Thank you for helping to make my dreams come true. Thank you for the emails, the comments, the suggestions, even the complaints. You make it all worth it. Till next time, adios. full cock kind of guy. 